let's, uh, let's dive in. Uh, Romans, we'll continue uh, to really build up our self-esteem in the book of Romans today, all right? Well, actually, uh, no, not at all. Um, if we're being really, really honest with each other, this book is breaking us down to literally nothing. And that's exactly where Paul is trying to take us, right? You're not going to find Romans uh, sitting in the self-help section at Barnes & Noble. Uh, it, we all know that something is wrong with us. Inherently, we're something wrong with us and something's wrong with the world. And the book of Romans is telling us that the solution is definitely not in us. And it's continuing to, to push us down lower and lower. And some of the cool things that, that we, we really see God doing through this series amongst the, the believers is that is that we see a continual uh, man stories telling about there's this pro progressive sanctification that's going on and here's what I mean by that that just means progressing that the life of a believer is continuing to 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 progress towards Christ and to look like Christ when we go through difficult passages like Romans uh, the position really before we come to Christ we're like here we're at the top and God is really not even on the radar, but let's just say positionally he's right here. Well, when, we, when we've been redeemed by Christ, when we are saved, this position starts to change for the rest of our life. And we start out here, we are going to continually move to the bottom as God has continued to be lifted up over and over again. He is going to continue to increase and we must decrease over and over again. And that's exactly what Romans is doing. It's making us decrease to literally nothing and that's what Paul is trying to do with us so we started um, in in Romans 1 going through verse by verse um, exegetically which is really really cool and we've seen Paul really 1 through 18 he uh, introduces himself as the apostle he is sent uh, for the gospel of God of salvation it's all he thinks about it's what he thinks about when he goes to bed at night it's what he thinks about when he wakes up in the morning it's what he lived for and it's what he died for so he's all about the gospel. Well, he started or he ended chapter one really uh, talking about condemnation, wrath, judgment, really 118 uh, all the way through 320. Well, we'll wrap up today talking about judgment, wrath, hell, condemnation. He's really trying to let us know there's some really, really, really bad news uh, because he wants us to know the position that we're in in order for us to understand the need for a gospel or need for the gospel. Of a savior he wants us to know that we deserve to split hell wide open because of our rebellion to God uh, he ends um, chapter 1 really he's, he's condemned the the Gentiles and and as he's doing that he says they're evil they're, they're wicked debased minds and as he's doing that the religious Jews are in the background says yay Paul you give it to them they don't need to just be circumcised they need to be castrated and stop populating the earth with stupidity you need to let them have it go get them and then Paul turns the guns on them and says, you think God is lucky to have you. You think he's lucky to have you? Really? You are in no different position. You are in need of a gospel. You are in need of Christ just like them. You are not entitled to anything. Uh, you, you, you're, you're, you don't have a get out of a hell free car because of your Jewish uh, heritage, because of your possession of the law, because of your circumcision. Your faith is fake, and that's a fatal thing, and you don't want to have that. And the Jews, obviously, last week, they responded. They objected. They said, no way, Paul. You've got the wrong people. We are entitled to salvation. God promised us. We're from Abraham. And then he says, no, you've been entrusted with these things. You are not entitled 
to them? Well, it leads us to today's as, as God has broken down the Gentile and he's broke down the Jew. He's stripping down today um, in 3, 9 through 20 that all men are condemned. Every man on the face of the earth from birth is condemned. He is going to spiritually strip us all down uh, and leave us naked and condemned before God in judgment. No secret hiding places. No securities to cling to. He has, uh, in legal terms, he's really presented a slam dunk case. And today he's coming in with his closing argument. All right. In baseball terms, he's pitched a perfect game. And he's bringing in the closer to put the nail in the coffin. And that's where 9 through 20 takes us. But to see the big pick of really where Paul is leading us to. Let's, let's look for the light. Because he's what, he, what he's trying to set us up for is that we are dead bad people and that we are in need of a savior and before we can receive this life this justification through the gospel he wants us to taste death and really paul doesn't really want us to taste it i mean it almost feels like he's got his hand on the back of our head and he's just shoving our our faces down in it and he's really wanting us to get this understanding because he's got some great news coming uh next week so that's where he's prepping us for so let's pray uh, before this message today. Let's also pray too, wouldn't we be mindful uh, that we're a church that has a heart for the nations. And uh, we, we have a world perspective here. You know that if you've been at LifePoint, we, we know that the world is not Smyrna, it's not Tennessee, it's not the United States, it's worldview. And the nation of Nepal is hurting. Uh, over 2,000 people have died from the devastating earthquakes. And that number continues to increase. Uh, that is a hopeless nation. And we want to pray for that nation. We have brothers and sisters in that country. And uh, we want to lift them up this morning as we pray. So let's do that. God, you are uncovering uh, some, some great, great, rich truths in uh, your word this morning in Romans 3, 9 through 20. God, some words that are going to cause us to question our, our position of how we got to be where we are. God, we are going to have a tendency to puff up in our nature and think highly of ourselves. We walked into the door, some of us thinking that we're really good and we're good people and, 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 and we were a part of, of all of this process. But God, would you soften us to these words this morning? We're going to uncover some great, great, rich truths of what a great God you are. But I pray that you soften the hearts of people so we can receive it and we would decrease ourselves so that you may increase through this message today. God, we pray for the nation of Nepal, a nation that, that does not uh, know Christ for the most part. God, we pray that through this um, devastation and your sovereign hand over the whole thing, we don't understand it. We don't know why you allow these things to happen, God, but we do trust your sovereign hand on that nation and that you will bring some praise and glory to you through the process. God, would you use uh, Christians the redeemed people to do that. Uh, we pray for their hurting. We pray that the gospel reaches those people. Um, and although physical life is lost, that spiritual life may be gained. We love you. And we pray these things in Christ. Amen. All right, three, nine through 20. Go ahead and get your devices, note taking, all that good stuff. And let's dive in. We've got a lot to cover. Uh, the Jews finally speak up. They haven't spoke yet. Now here we go. They say, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Paul says, no, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under 
sin. Underline under sin in your Bibles or your devices or whatever. Here, this is a bittersweet passage. Uh, it's, it's sweet because it reveals the truth about humanity. The human condition under sin, but it's bittersweet because it flies in the face of everything that our culture tells us. That we're born good and that our environment will pollute us to sin. We're just good people from birth. And Paul is saying, no, we're all under sin. We're born evil creatures. And the default destination is not heaven. Your default destination is hell. And you don't, you don't, um, you don't, um, you don't, you're not sinners because you sin. You sin because you are sinners from the get-go. All right, that's what he's kind of laying out. Now, if you remember this line of questioning, if you remember in chapter 3, verse 1, the Jews were saying, well, what advantage is it to be Jewish? Well, Paul answered then, he said, there's many advantages to that. You've been entrusted with the oracles of God. He had given that law to the people. He had not to the immoral pagans, the Gentiles, the Greeks. He had not revealed himself to them, so they were left in fear and confusion and false idols sacrificing, and he had not given them, but he had entrusted the Jews with the oracles of God. So he had told them it was very advantageous to them. Well, now, now they're saying, are we Jews any better off? Now they're asking the question, are we right positionally with God? Are we righteous before God's eyes? That's, that's what they're asking now to the core. And Paul says, no, not at all. You have no spiritual supremacy. All your advantages that you have not used have now turned from blessings to curses, and you are spiritually condemned like all of the Gentiles, Greeks, and the pagans, and they are no different than the other. Now, we know that last week, or really what we've seen in Romans, that, that Paul had divided the entire nation, the entire world, uh, into, into Gentiles and, and Jews, the Gentiles, Greeks, pagans, whatever you want to call them in the different contexts, but he had divided the entire world into those two categories. Well, in this text today, that all are under sin, he's charging all of us, everyone on the face of the earth, under sin. Americans, Europeans, men, women, heterosexuals, homosexuals. Educated, uneducated, religious, irreligious, jocks, nerds, hipsters, rednecks. Everybody on the face of the earth is condemned under sin from birth. Now this term under, as he says, under sin, that's a military term. And it means you are under the dominion, the control, the complete authority of sin. It owns you. You're a product of the empire of sin, and you live under it, and it owns you. It controls you. Now, if you know anyone, if you've been a part of military, uh, you know that when you enlist in the military, you are owned. You, you, don't, you don't own yourself anymore. You're under the dominion, the control, the authority of the military. They tell you what to do, and you're enslaved, and you're captivated by them. You don't own yourself anymore. And that's what he's trying to get them to understand, that they're completely owned and dominated by sin from birth. Everyone in here, apart from Christ, the way we're born, the way we enter the world, we are thrust into wickedness because of our sin nature that we inherited. Okay, we're going to get into that in just a minute. So here's what he's basically saying. They're under sin, all people, we are all slaves to sin. Okay, because of the inherited gene from Adam. When he fell, 
We inherited his sin gene. All right, Romans 5.12, look at it with me real quick. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, spiritual death, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Every human being, the face of the earth, inherited the sin nature from our father, Adam. The only one who walked the earth that did not inherit the sin gene was Jesus because his father wasn't Adam. His father was God himself. Immaculate conception. He broke the lineage of sin. He didn't inherit it like you and I did. All right, we're captivated, we're enslaved to it. Now here's why we know this. We often use this illustration of our kids from a very early age. Anybody have kids? Anybody ever teach your kids how to lie? Of course you did not. You didn't teach them how to do that. Do you teach your kids how to bite like a Doberman at daycare, right? No, they just come out doing that stuff. Do you teach them how to disobey, fall on the floor, kicking and screaming, going limp? No, they rebel from birth because it's in their nature. Now, culture says that, that we're born good and then wickedness from our environment is thrust upon us and that it changes us by the nature and the environment that we're into. But God says, no, no, no. You're born wicked from the get-go. Your environment amplifies that wickedness, but you're already born wicked from the birth. You're infected with a sin nature. You've been corrupted. You've been polluted. And then wickedness flows out of your heart because of your sin nature that you were enslaved and that you were controlled and you are completely owned by it. Theologically, this is called total depravity. All right? If you're taking notes, write that down. Here's what this means. You are completely owned, and you are not good. You are completely bad from birth, and there's nothing that you can do to change your position. Nothing. It is completely encapsulated your entire being, your heart, your mind, your soul, your actions, your character, your conduct. Everything in you is completely depraved of pleasing God. You cannot please God with anything in you because you're infected nature of sin since birth. Total depravity. You need to understand that position. Now, here's what that does not mean. Don't, do not get that confused with utter depravity. All right? Utter depravity means that we're, not as, we're, not as, we're, we're as bad as we want to be. Like if you took off all the restraints and everyone, it just anarchy set in across the world and everybody's just running around raping, stealing, killing, everything, complete anarchy, murdering to the point of human extinction, Right? That would be utter depravity. We're not in utter depravity because God has common grace on the world. We're not as bad as we could be. It's called total depravity, and it's every bit of our being. We have no ability to please God from birth because of our nature. We all need to know that positionally where we stand because we're setting us up of our need for the gospel. Spurgeon uh, said that, that, that as, 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 as salt flavors every drop of the ocean sin corrupts every atom in our nature from from toe to head from head to toe everything in us and now paul is going to go through these rest of his passages and he's going to unpack this total depravity he's going to show us the complete nature of which it's infected he's going to the mind he's going to go to the heart and he's going to go to the body the character the conduct everything in us our soul is corrupt all right this is going to be really good news. You're going to feel really good about yourself when you get done. Okay, let's go. Um, Romans 10, here we go. 
as it is written. All right, the first thing we're going to understand, as I told you guys this last week, anytime you see that, this is a reference. He's getting ready to quote Old Testament passages. All right, and 10 through 18, Paul is getting ready to use a method called pearl stringing. And it's basically quoting and citing verses from the Old Testament. In these passages, he's going to go through Ecclesiastes, uh, Isaiah. Um, um, he's going he's to unpack different ones, the Psalms. And he's referring to Old Testament passages, which the Jews should have known what they were. Remember, they had been trusted with the oracles of God. So he's quoting Old Testament passages. They had that gift. And he goes through 10 through 18, unpacking total depravity. And he says that, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He's letting us know out of the gate, because of this total depravity, that no man stands righteous before God. A righteous position that we go when we stand before judgment, that God declares his righteousness requires him to be perfect, to be, for us to be perfect. He requires that of all of us. He says, no one that has ever had blood pumping through their veins except for Jesus is righteous before God. Now here's where we start to get a little bit positionally confused. We start to say, I'm good Surely, when God looks at Osama bin Laden and Lady Gaga, those kind of messed up people, surely he sees me as good. I'm not like those people. I'm not like all those other people that are doing all those wicked things. Paul says, no way. Since birth, you've forgotten that God requires perfection. His standard is perfection, not good. You're good and your best day is not good enough. He requires perfection, and hell is full of good people, all right? He requires perfection. He says, none are righteous, not even one, except for Jesus Christ. This is our birth, this is our default position from the moment we are born, that nobody's righteous, okay? Now, here's what he moves on. He moves on to the mind. Go back up to, to uh, 11, please. And he says, it's gone to the, to the mind. He says, no one understands. He says, the mind has been corrupted. That's the first part of the total depravity. The mind has been corrupted by sin. Because of our nature, we can't even understand the things of God. No one in the room has any kind of intellectual supremacy where you think you figured God out before you came to Christ. You did not pick up the Bible and start reading, searching to understand the things of God. And you're like, oh, I figured this out. I'm really, really smart. I understand God now. Now I will give myself to you. Absolutely not. This passage says you have no ability to understand the things of God. Because your mind is depraved. It's debased. It doesn't understand spiritual things. Look at 1 Corinthians 2.14 with me. Paul says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Because they're folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He says, you can't understand God because you don't have the spirit in you. Your brain is messed up, jacked up, corrupted. 
And it can't even understand the things of God. When you read the Bible before you knew Christ, it didn't make a lick of sense to you. You don't understand the things of God and you don't understand the God of the Bible. Because those understanding, that understanding is only given by the Spirit. When you receive Christ, the Spirit dwells within you and it gives you the power to understand what you read. The things of God. Apart from Jesus, you don't understand God at all. So anyone in the room today, maybe you've never figured out Christ, you're trying to, man, i got to figure this guy out. I don't really know about to give my life to Jesus. Let me give you a heads up. You're never going to figure it out because you don't have the Spirit in you. You can't comprehend the things of God. They're spiritually discerned. You don't need better understanding. It's not your intellectual supremacy that's going to figure out God. It's going to be the Spirit of God that is only through Jesus Christ. You're corrupt. Our minds are corrupt. He moves, moves forward. All right, this is why the mind, you know, the, when, when the mind is corrupted by sin and you can't understand God, you try to rationalize sin. And here's how we rationalize sin. Here's how people who do not have Christ rationalize sin. Homosexuality is okay because it's all about love. Two people love each other, man, that's okay. God is love, their love, it's all cool. I'm going to move in with my girlfriend or my boyfriend because that marriage covenant thing, that's archaic. <laughs> I didn't have any play in my life. I'm going to have sex with my boyfriend and my girlfriend because we're going to get married one day. Man, I believe in abortion. That's a woman's body. That's a woman's choice. She deserves to have that. I'm going to get a divorce because God wants me to be happy. We justify and try to rationalize sin because our minds are corrupt without Christ. They don't make sense. Don't try to argue a biblical point to someone who doesn't know Christ because they're not going to understand it. They need to hear the gospel so they may receive the Spirit so they can understand the things of God. Then he goes on and he says that no one seeks God. All right? Let's, let's rest here for a second. No one seeks God. Really? It, it appears often that many people are seeking God. People come into these doors on Sunday, they're looking for something that you could say, yeah, they're really searching for God. I could see God really moving. They're, they're, trying to, they're trying to get freedom from guilt, freedom from pain. They want health. They want wealth. They want peace. They seem to be seeking God. But just because people are seeking the things that only God can give does not mean people are seeking God. They're seeking the wrong things. They want what God can offer, but not the God himself. No one seeks for God. People want peace, but they don't want the Prince of Peace. They want the healer, or they, they want healing, but they don't want the healer. They want the kingdom, but they don't want the king. Just because people are coming through these doors and looking for the things that only Jesus can offer does not mean they're seeking after Jesus because Paul just told us no one seeks for God. We have no ability from birth to seek after our creator. And I'm going to show you a couple things because you may think you found him somewhere. Look at John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. God pulls him first. And I will raise him up on the last day. No one found God. He was not lost. 
you were. You had no ability to seek after God. You could not find God. People cannot say, I found the Lord in blank year. You didn't find it because he wasn't lost. You were. You can't seek Christ until Christ has sought you first. That's when the search begins. That's the, that's the green flag right there. When he chooses you and he owns you, he bought you, he wakes you up, he sought you, then the process of seeking God happens. Isaiah 55, 56, and Matthew 7, 7 talk about seeking the Lord and you will find. Seek and you shall find. They are talking to the redeemed people. That's who they're talking to. So somebody can't use that verse and say, see, man, you can seek God. No, after you're redeemed, you seek God. That's when the search begins. No human on the face of the earth can seek God. So you got to process that today. Because some of y'all walked in these doors thinking that you found God. I started coming to church. I started seeking, reading, hanging around with good Christian people. And you thought that you sought and you found God. No, you didn't. If you've truly been redeemed, he sought you. He started it. And without that process, without it, him calling you out and seeking you, you were in a position of condemnation. You couldn't do anything about it. You were under sin. You were under complete, total depravity to do anything on your own. You see how this game's playing out with this continued suppression of you, right? As we continue to grow in Christ, the more you grow in Christ, the more you read the Bible, and the more you understand it, you are going to continue to suppress you and take less credit for everything you ever thought that you did and continue to give praise and honor to glory and lift him up to God because he did everything. That's the God of the Bible. And that's what he's doing through this series. Now, this is uh, where churches get this wrong is churches will, will they'll, they'll try to cater their services to, to seeker people. Let's make it really cool in here. Let's make it attractional on the outside. Let's pull in all those people because they're seeking God. No, they're not. We just read that no one seeks after God. That would be foolish. We cater the services to people who've been redeemed by Christ and are now seeking to know the God of the Bible more every day, more intimate relationship with him. That's why we preach a message to believers to run after the heart of God. And then we pray for the Holy Spirit to pierce the hearts of the unbelievers. That's what we pray for. We want them here, but we pray that God would pierce the hearts and that he would call them out, that he would seek them and call them, and then we would they would respond to him. So that's what we're trying to understand here. All right, now he goes into 12. He says, all become worthless and that no one does good. Before Christ, in the world, he says, nobody does good. All right, some of you are like, man, that's, that's, <laughs> that's a little while. I, I, I mean, surely Christians are not the only people that do good things on this earth, right? Yeah, I mean, even Hitler probably did some good things, right? I've got friends. I've got people that are not Christians. Man, they go serve at the homeless shelter. They'll go down to Goodwill. They'll serve at Red Cross. They, got, they, they, they send money across the seas to help an orphan. Or widows, man, some of them are more generous th with their money than Christians are, if we're being honest, right? They lie less than Christians. Now, here's where we get confused. So we're not the only ones that do good. There's two different kinds of good. There's relative good, 
and there's absolute good. Relative good is when we compare our good deeds to everyone else. All right, when I hold up my deed against yours, I look pretty dang good. I, 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 I'm, I'm looking really good because I don't do as bad as you do. So I'm comparing my goodness with a relative good. All right, and out of my relative goodness, here's the difference. Relative good says I get all the praise. I get all of the glory when I do good. Makes me look good when I give my money to the homeless guy on the side of the street. Makes me look good. When I go down and serve at the homeless shelter, it's making me look good. I get all the praise. I get all the honor. I get all the glory. It's all about me. Romans 14, 23 says that anything that is done that does not proceed from faith is sin. So if you've ever done a good deed in your entire life and you took the credit for it, you're a blasphemer. That's me. I'm right there. I took credit for a lot of good deeds that I did before Christ. He says that's sin because it's not done for the glory of God. You were created to bring God glory. And here comes absolute good. Absolute good is when we do things for the good to make God look good, not us. And he says, when it comes to that, no one does good apart from Christ. Everything you've ever done, every good deed you think you did, cutting your neighbor's grass, helping an old lady across the street, your cessation of drunkenness, drugs, and sexual immorality, all of those things you think that are good, Paul says none are good. You don't do good. You don't have an ability to do good in the eyes of God. Stop comparing it with other people. We're looking at it from a God perspective. And he says he cares about the motive behind your deeds. It's not just good enough to do the deeds. He wants to know the motivation behind the obedience. And he says in relative goodness, your motivation is to make yourself look good. Some Christians struggle with that today. They want to run around and do a lot of Christian things and take all the credit for it. My this, my ministry, my this, I've done this, my service project, I did these things, I, I, I. And you try to steal the glory from God. And he says, whatever proceeds, doesn't proceed from faith, is sin. No one does good. No, not one. If you are in this room today and you are uh, not a follower of Jesus yet, Man, all, all your efforts of serving, going to Goodwill, homeless, shelter, orphans, widows, humanitarian things, insert anything, all your going to church, <laughs> all of your good deeds, put them in one big pile, they mean nothing to God. He says, because you're doing them for yourself, for you to get credit, for you to get praise, for you to get honor, and you to get glory. Some of you are saying, no, I'm really not. <laughs> I'm really not. I'm just a good person. I'm just a... I'm just really good, and I just like doing those things. Those are my hobbies. Man, I'm going to encourage you. If you like doing those things for a hobby, you're just that good of a person. Number one, you haven't understood that you're really not good. And number two, you keep doing those things, but do not think for one second that it earns any merit or any favor with God. He says none are good. And if that's not good enough, if that's not Paul punching us in the gut enough, he says we're worthless. <laughs> he says we're worthless. I mean, you... you you guys are reading that right with me. He says, before Christ, apart from Christ, we are worthless to God. If you don't ever come to the position in your life 
to understand that you are worthless to God apart from Christ, you will never understand your need for the gospel. You'll never want it. You'll never think you need it. You'll think you're good enough, you're smart enough, that you choose God, you'll seek God. He says you are worthless. And when Ephesians tells us that we are dead in our trespasses, let me tell you what, dead people don't have worth. There's no worth. You don't get worth until God breathes the gospel of salvation in you, breathes life into you, and then you have worth immediately in God's eyes. You go from worthless to worth, from death to life because of God, not because of you. Let's keep going. Now Paul moves to the body. In 13 through 17, it's corrupted our body in general, our mind, our heart, our body. And he tells us this, that their throat, this is us, everybody before Christ, their throat is an open grave. They use it, their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. In the first century, they didn't, they didn't embalm, all right? So an open tomb smelt like death. Paul says, your heart, your heart before Christ, everyone as you're born is an open tomb, and your mouth and your spiritual breath stinks. Every time you open your mouth, it smells like death. And all you do is bitterness, cursing, you tear people down with your words. James says our tongue is like a fire unleashing unrighteousness on the entire world. Our mouths are like a grave of death. Then he moves down to the feet. He's gone all the way through the body. He says in their feet they trample, they, they create uh, murder and, and bloodshed. And he's basically saying that we create a path of devastation everywhere we go. That's what sin does. Think about somebody in your life who's been affected by sin. It destructs and it tears down marriages, families, people, lives. It destroys, it leaves a wake of destruction in their path because of us and our sin-corrupt nature. Everything in us, and we have no ability to change that. Look at human history. Look at all the bloodshed, the war, the battles. We are instruments of unrighteousness. We cause bloodshed everywhere we go. Look at verse 18 as we wrap up this part. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. He says, basically, they're all living. Everyone lives as if God does not exist. He doesn't control their view of money, sex, time, purpose, job, nothing that he's given you. You live as if he does not exist. There's many cultural Christians today that live just like that. Come on Sundays, people come on the church on Sundays we worship, and then we live our lives outside of these walls as if God does not exist. He doesn't control anything in your life. He's not at the center. You don't run everything by God. Call them functional atheists. And they're corrupt, and our minds are corrupt. There's no fear of God. 
biblical fear of God consists of two things. A, a, a reverence and awe of respect of his glory and his might. There's the first level. The second one is, is a fear of God's of violating God's holy and righteous decree, his commands. If I, if I do not obey, I have a fear of him. He can leave destruction in my life. And I, if I don't have a fear of that, I don't have a biblical fear of God. So I must have awe, respect, reverence. God is almighty. And then I must understand that if I violate his holy nature, that I'm headed for destruction. This root cause of this sin nature is by not having a fear of God. If there are nations, if there are people, if there are cultures that do not have a fear of God, they will give themselves over to evil and they will have no restraints. Pit bulls off the chains. They're going to do whatever they're going to do to destruct everything because there is no fear of God. There's no restraints. Look what, uh, there's a, um, you guys maybe know Jonathan Edwards. Man, he, he writes a, and a piece called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. To people that say, God is love. God is love. God loves everybody. God will never punish. God will never discipline. God will never pour out wrath. He would not do that. They do not know the God of the Bible. They don't understand that the love that they so desperately want will only be experienced through Christ. That was God's love. That was his extension of love. He says, you don't want wrath. Here's Jesus. Here's the gift of, of love. Here it is. Apart from that, you will only experience the wrath of God. And you don't even fear my wrath. And look what this quote says in this Edwards. He says, the bow of God's wrath is bent. And the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart. And strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God. And that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. It's pretty fearful. Um, Proverbs 9 says the, the, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. When, he starts to, when you start to revere and honor and have awe for him and he starts to control the way that you live your life. You start to check everything by him. He's at the center of your life because you have a healthy fear of God. And he says that's the root of all the issue, that people do not have a healthy or they don't have any fear of God. So really in 10 through 18, Paul's been encapsulating this total depravity. And he says that if we are left up to ourselves at this point of complete depravity, if we're left up to ourselves, that no one is going to choose God because no one seeks God. No ability to do that. You might say, man, we got choices. I got choices. I make choices all the time. We do have choices. We're not robots. But the problem is that at the deepest root of our choices, we want the freedom to choose the things that we most deeply desire. That's what our choices are based upon, what we desire. And because of the sin nature that we've inherited, that we're enslaved to, the thing that we most deeply desire is not Jesus. So you cannot choose him because of that reason. Now let's look at 18 through 20 as we wrap up. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now what he just did, he says, when I show the law, when I hold the law and the standard of the law, every man's mouth will be shut. There will be no defense. No works of the law will be justified to any man. He says, you don't have a defense. And he says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in its sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law was given not to justify us, but to condemn us. God said, here's the law. You're never going to get there. Don't try. You're, you're never going to achieve perfection. I require perfection, all of the law. If you violate one, you're accountable to all of it. You will never achieve it. It's only there to show you of your unrighteousness. It's the mirror that shows the dirt on our face. We would never take the mirror and try to clean our face with it. We'll never be able to obtain the perfection and the righteousness that he requires. That's what the law was given for, to show us what we cannot do. That's why, <laughs> that's why we needed the gospel, because we needed Jesus to do that for us. We needed him to step in. So here's what people think about the gospel. Some people view the gospel as this divine life preserver. And that you're struggling, you're wading in the water, you're, you're doggy paddling, whatever you're doing, you're struggling to survive. And then God throws this divine life preserver, the gospel out, and you just, all you got to do is just reach out and grab it. And then there's others that believe salvation is like a, 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 a voting process. God cast about a vote for you, the enemy cast a vote for you, and that you have the deciding vote in the deal. God's done his part, now the rest is up to you. Now here's the problem with that. The problem is, is if, we wait, if God waited until we chose him, we'd all be dead. We'll all be damned for the rest of our life because no one seeks after God. We don't have the ability to go after and seek God. That's the position he's trying to leave us in. Right? Ephesians 4 says we're all dead. So here's what dead people don't do. Dead people do not reach out and grab a life preserver. And dead people do not cast votes from a casket. There's no ability to do that. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, when God did that, Lazarus didn't say, okay, i got a big decision to make here. <laughs> this death thing really, really stinks. I think I'm going to choose life because it's a lot, lot better. No, he didn't because he was dead and dead people don't make choices. That is how you were saved. Rather today that you understand that walking in the room, but I pray that through this you understand that you have because only God can raise people from the dead. And he did it. Did it through me. Did it through you. Some of you have been redeemed. He can do that. No one seeks for God. Paul wasn't seeking God on the road to Damascus, right? He was killing Christians. That's what he was going to do. I wasn't seeking God when he saved me, and you weren't seeking God either because you were dead, just like Lazarus. And as we continue, the guys are going to come out, and we're going to leave a time of, of just response here. We're going to get into next week 
of the justification through Christ. The position that we are, for those that are redeemed, the position that we are in, we are now justified through Christ. And here's the deal. When, when, you, when you read through passages like today, and there's such death and desperation and, and complete and this total depravity to do anything apart from Jesus. When you understand the position that you were in, and now the position that you are now in, all because of God, that should make you want to get up and worship Him. Because you know you were dead and now you're alive, you know you were worthless, now you have worth. That warrants a response of not only worshiping now, but worshiping when you come in these doors on Sunday. Hearts abandoned, arms raised, singing loud, whatever you do. Not because these guys are telling you to do that. You shouldn't have to do that. But because you understand the gospel, you understand the position that you're in, you can only get up and say, praise God. You are so right and deserving. My loudest praise, my posture of surrender, that I would completely abandon myself in here at this moment to worship my God. When I walk in these doors on Sunday and when I leave out of this place, that should be our posture. Man, if you're a, somebody that's coming in and trying to figure out God, figure out Jesus, I don't know if I need to give my life to him or not. And I want to encourage you, if he is stirring up something in you, he initiates it, right? If he is calling you out, and you don't want the things of God, but you want God. Man, I want to encourage you, come talk to me after service. I want to talk to you personally. I would love to help you understand that you don't have to stand in that position any longer. Come talk to me. Let's pray. God, we love you so, so, so much. You deserve every praise and honor that you are due. God, and I pray that we would never try to take any kind of praise or, or glory or honor from you. To think we had anything to do uh, with our position of salvation, how we came to know you in relationship with you. Pray that our people continually decrease themselves every day so that you may increase in our lives. Help us to live like a people that have been rescued from this position. We love you because of Jesus. We pray to you for interceding on our behalf. We pray it in his name. Amen.